0: Okay, I can't help myself here. You know, I knew Paige was going to be gone today. So I was praying, and said, Lord, please send somebody to do something to help us with our music worship. But I didn't think he was actually going to do it. So, thank you, Lord, for your provision. And thank you, Judy, for being willing to let him use you as his provision for us. So, John chapter 7. As we continue walking through the Gospel of John, we'll be looking at verses 25 through 36. As Jesus is still in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles there in Jerusalem. It's later in the year, September-ish time frame, so the temperatures are cooling off in Jerusalem finally. The rainy season's about to set in by the time shortly after the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Usually is the beginning of the rainy season. The Feast of Harvest is also being celebrated as part of the Feast of Tabernacles because the harvest period occurs during that same period of time. So there's just lots of joy connected and associated with this Feast of Tabernacles as they all gather together in Jerusalem to worship their Lord and remember His provisions for them and carrying them through the year that they've been through as by remembering the 40 years He carried them through the wilderness and provided for them. So let's start by reading verse 25 through 36 together. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly. And they say nothing to him? Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple... The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, for the way that you use it to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to make us more sensitive and aware of what you are doing in us and around us, so that you may do something through us. And Lord, we pray that during this time as we look into your word, these, these words Jesus spoke to the crowd in Jerusalem on that day, that our eyes would be open, Lord, that we would not be like them in not hearing you and resisting you, but instead that we would be spirit-filled listeners who are hearing your word and responding to what you're doing instead of resisting it. And we pray, Lord, that you would just accomplish your purposes in each of us individually that you have this morning and that also that you would accomplish the thing in us that you're seeking to accomplish as a church body. And Lord, I pray and specifically ask that you would give me the words of wisdom to speak this morning that I would say nothing that is not something you want said to each of us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in this middle of this feast, and Jesus shows up at the temple and starts teaching to the people as he's going through after four day, you know an eight day long feast, the first four days he doesn't say anything, he's quiet, and then he starts talking on day four and continues to talk over the next several days and the people are as we looked at last week with verses fourteen through twenty four you know the people are like, "What is he doing here he's talking about stuff." And there's some who are believing in him and some who are not. He's trying to help them understand the difference between the law of Moses and the authority of Moses. And then he comes to this place here where he's been teaching and people are like, this is the guy. Oh, that's why he said they were trying to kill him. This is the guy they've been wanting to kill. And look, right here he is in front of us talking openly And the religious leaders are doing nothing. They're just letting him do this. They're not saying anything. They're not doing anything. And as a result, some people believe, or start to question at least, that by the leader's lack of action, that it is an implied approval of Jesus by not doing something and by not responding to him standing there in front of him, teaching in the temple. There was this actual... View of Jewish thought in that day, it still carries on today in some subsets of the Jewish life, that to say nothing is to tacitly approve of what you've just heard. That if you object to it, you're obligated to state your objection. And if not, then you are sort of silently approving it. And that's what was happening here. Some of the people were saying, look, they aren't saying anything. They aren't doing anything about it. So obviously, maybe they think he is the Christ after all. But that only lasts for a few seconds. And then sort of, you know, they come back to their senses and realize, oh, this just can't be the case. It's, you know, he can't possibly be the real Messiah because we know where he comes from. But before that moment, you still have this group. Some are unsure, like maybe he's the Messiah, but maybe he's not. And the irony here is they do not know where Jesus comes from. They think they know where he is from, Galilee, but they don't recognize him. John does this over and over, not just in the, in this section. It's more glaring in this section of chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, or 7, 8, 9, and 10. But he does this often throughout his gospel where he's, he's illustrating sort of this, this irony of, of the people. They think they know where Jesus is from. Because they think he's from Galilee. And so they act on this incorrect belief. Right? They're acting on their belief that he is just a Galilean. And they don't recognize where he's truly from. The irony is they are sure they know he's not the Messiah because they know where he's from. But they don't know where he's from, really. They don't even realize they don't even know where he's from. But John's doing something else here as well. And we'll see this play out again and again throughout this section of the gospel of John. I describe it and articulate it this way. He's allowing the people to be their own prophets. Only they're ironic prophets. They're saying things in a prophetic way that they don't even realize what they're doing. And it's against themselves. Because. When they say, is he going to go to the dispersion, to the Greeks? It is their own rejection of Jesus that makes those statements, prophetic words, of what Jesus does in the future. Because Jesus does just that through the disciples. And this happens over and over throughout John's gospel. And Jesus responds to these assumptions about where he's from. Jesus responds that he knows where he is from. You know me, verse 28, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. Jesus understands where he's from. And origins are important. Understanding where we come from is important. But purpose is more important. Abraham Lincoln was once spoken to someone who knew his grandfather, who was apparently a fairly upright individual, someone who was well-respected. This person was speaking very positively about Abraham Lincoln's grandfather. And then Lincoln makes the statement, I don't have the quote exactly correct because I'm doing it from memories, but it's along these lines, and Abraham's Lincoln's response back to this person was as wonderful as my grandfather was I'm more concerned about who his grandson becomes. Lincoln epitomizes this understanding that origins are important but purpose is more important. And Jesus does not hide his true origins coming from the father's side there in heaven. However, he explains also to us in this passage that His origins are not as important as his mission and purpose from the father. What he's saying is you shouldn't believe that I'm Messiah because I come from the father. Because my origins are in heaven. And that's where I'm truly from. You should believe in me because of the purpose that I am here. And my mission that I am accomplishing for the father who sent me. And here again, John illustrates the irony of the people thinking that they know when they don't really know anything. They think they know who he is and they know where he's from. When they don't understand anything at all about where he's from and why he's here. And that, all of that that I've just explained to you, is laying on top of the reality of why everybody's in Jerusalem. Another one of the sad ironies is that the reason the people are in Jerusalem is the feast was a time to celebrate their loyalty to the one true God. Yet here they are rejecting him. Do you see the cutting irony of this? We're here to celebrate our loyalty to God who carried us through the wilderness. And here he is standing in front of us and we reject him all the while claiming to know where Jesus is from. But if they knew where he was really from, they wouldn't be rejecting him. If they were truly loyal to the one true God, they wouldn't be rejecting Jesus at this moment either. Yet they are. It couldn't be any more of a divine comedy than it is at this moment. The silliness of saying we're here to celebrate our loyalty to God, but we reject him while he's standing right there in front of us. Jesus also understands that his destiny, his time, and his people are his, not anyone else's. I mean, look at what happens here in verse 46. Well, I mean, here in verse 32, the Pharisees, they send the temple guards to arrest Jesus. And he just, just, just escapes. I mean, how does he do this? How does Jesus just escape being arrested and taken? I mean, here in verse 46, we read that his words were so enthralling that those that were sent to arrest him just don't do it. They just like, eh, I don't know why we're here. We're not going to arrest this guy. I don't know why they sent us to do this. We're just going to let him go. Then later, at the end of chapter 8, when the whole crowd decides to stone Jesus, he just walks away and no one sees him. Like, How does that happen? How does it, that man is a, is a blasphemer and the law requires that we stone him. Everybody, look, we all know he's Jesus. We all know what he looks like. We're standing right here in front of him. Grab a stone. We're going to stone him. Quick, grab him and drag him out of the temple. Can't do this in the temple, right? He says, we can't stone somebody inside the temple. We gotta drag him outside the temple first. Grab him. You grab him. Why, well, uh, he's not here. What do you mean he's not here? Where did he go? How did he just walk through the crowd with nobody seeing him and knowing who he was when they're all having a hissy fit ready to stone him? How does this happen? He just walks away. The other thing that's important to understand is these temple guards were extremely loyal to the chief priest and the rulers of the temple. We all know, or most of us all know, that the chief priest, the high priest, had to come from the priestly line of Aaron. You had to be a direct descendant of Aaron to qualify as a high priest. And then that person was selected from among the potential candidates by the other Pharisees and the other religious leaders. But what you may not realize is that the chief temple guard, the guy who's the commander of all the temple guards, was also a member of the high priestly family. And oftentimes he was selected because he wasn't selected to be the high priest, which meant he was probably a brother at the very least, a first cousin of who the high priest is. And so they were very loyal to the priestly family because they were part of it. They were integrally a part of it. It was like, hey, look, you know, you were really close to being made high priest, but you didn't make the, you you didn't find, obviously you didn't make the final cut. We gave it to your brother. So we're going to make you the chief of the temple guard. You're going to be in charge of all the temple guards. And that guy goes to listen to Jesus and just walks away and doesn't arrest him after the high priest has told him to go do it? That makes no sense. That is just humanly impossible. Which shows how much in control of his destiny Jesus is. And on the subject of destiny... Jewish thought held to the idea of a man's destiny. Just as they believed each man had a time that was his time, as I talked about back in verse 6 of chapter 7 a couple weeks ago, so they also believed that no one could kill a man before his destiny had arrived. But Jesus escaping their plans to seize him is more than just fate and destiny. Jesus is in control of his destiny, and he is not a man trapped in his destiny. He is in control of it. And as I said back at the end of chapter 6, Jesus is dividing the people into two groups again. Some people believe, but others do not. All throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, at least up until the very end of it, this is occurring again and again. Jesus is forcing people to make a decision about who he is And that decision divides the people into the two different groups of those who believe and those who say he's a bad person leading the people astray. In fact, chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and even 11 and 12, all of these are summarized under the simple heading of who is Jesus? All of these chapters are focusing on that simple question, both the way John writes it And also the way the people involved in each of the narratives are responding and acting. Who is Jesus? Is he the Christ or is he someone else? And so here it is again, as we reach verse 31. Yet many of the people believed in him because they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now comes the point where the officers are sent out to arrest Jesus. The Pharisees have realized, because of what the people are saying, they've realized they have to do something. They understand that their lack of action with Jesus at this moment is right there in front of them. All the people are starting to perceive this tacit approval of Jesus by the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Well, of course, we know from having read the story before that that's not at all the case. Even in the previous chapters, John's made it very clear that these people are not approving of anything Jesus has done. And they really do want to kill him. And the only reason they're not killing him before and they aren't killing him at this moment is because Jesus is in control of his destiny and he will not have his time of death until his chosen moment. And so Jesus is talking to them about returning to the Father. And he says to them that it's a place that they cannot go. And they can't go there both physically or spiritually. Right? We gathered together and prayed this morning before, at the beginning of the service. And we entered into the throne room of God. We went to where Jesus is in the spirit by our praying to him. But they can't. They can't not only because it was before the cross and before the giving of the spirit. They can't because they've rejected him. Look, this is just basic, simple logic. If you reject God, you can't enter his throne room and make a plea to him. You have to acknowledge that he exists before you can talk to him. It's one of the biggest challenges that atheists have and agnostics. They have to acknowledge that he really exists before they can ask him for anything. And they don't want to acknowledge that he exists. They concoct an entire belief system around the idea that he doesn't exist. And so their biggest obstacle is just even admitting that he exists. And here are these people. I mean, in a sense, I feel sorry for them. They're standing in the temple and they still can't go to him. And then once again, we see in verse 35, this idea that these people are ironic prophets. Because they say, where does he intend to go? Is he going to the dispersion, to the diaspora? This idea of the, the Jews that lived out away from Palestine. Is he going to go there and teach them and also teach the Greeks? Look, okay. Anytime you see that phrase, the Greeks, you can just substitute the word Gentiles. You saying, is he going to leave here and go to the dispersion, talking to the Jews among all the, the Greek areas, and then also teach the Gentiles too? Is he actually going to go talk to the Gentiles? And their rejection becomes a prophetic word of what Jesus is going to do through the disciples when they carry him to the diaspora and to the Gentiles. And everything we read in the book of Acts is in reality a Fulfillment of this strange moment where they don't even realize what they're saying when they say it of what he's going to do. So you guys know what happens next. So what? Who said that? Thank you. Yes, I'm finally making some hidden roads. You know what's coming next. So What? Thank you so much for this wonderful insight into the understanding of Jewish thought in the first century and the practices of the temple guards and all this wonderful stuff. But so what? The first so what is kind of still uncomfortable for us, just as it is for them in that day that Jesus still divides. As I said last week, just don't be surprised that Jesus forces people to make a decision And that choice places people close to you on a different side of the line than you are. Don't be surprised that it happens. The other so what is like Jesus, knowing where we come from is important. But why we are here is more important. Look, you and I, we we know where we come from. Most of us know where we come from. And even when we talk about it in terms of the spiritual sense of where do we come from, we know that we are born again. We have come from God, just as Jesus did. Not exactly the same, but we have come from him because we were born by his spirit. Yet, knowing that we are from the Father, having been born of God by the Spirit, as important as that origin of our personhood is, It is still our mission and purpose that are more important than the origin of our walk in Christ. The thing he has put on us individually to do and corporately as a church. That's why I asked you to pray for the Lord to reveal his vision for us as a church. Our origins as a church community is important But our purpose and mission is more important. Lastly, and you can probably come up with other relevant so what's to everything I've tried to explain this morning, but the last one that I have for you is The Day is Coming when all of us who believe in Jesus as our Savior will go to where He is. We will stand in His presence and see Him in the fullness of His glory and majesty and wonder. And we will be in awe. And we get to do that one day, unlike the people that Jesus spoke to that day. We can go to where he is. They cannot. You understand? Most of the people standing in the temple that day, listening to Jesus, right? We think about, if I could just hear Jesus speak like like those people did. If I could just hear it right from his own lips. The way those people did. And we think about how wow. How wonderful that would be. They're standing there. Listening to Jesus speak. They're hearing these words live. From his lips. And they still wouldn't believe. Here we are 2,000 years removed from this moment. In history. They will never get to see Him. Well, I mean, they will, but they won't really enjoy it very much when they finally get to see Him. But we do because we believe. We get to go where He is. It is not the case for us when He says, where I am, you cannot come. That's not for us. That was true for them, but it ain't true for us. Because we get to go where he is one day. And oh, what a glorious day that will be to finally see his face the way we see each other's face. All because we put our faith in Christ. That's a reward worth living for. That's a joy worth living for to know that we will get to see his face. But, hey, while we're still here, it's not like we got nothing to live for here. I mean, apart from any mission and purpose he gives us, we have the joy of the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. We have the joy of the Lord today here in this place, in this moment. And guess what? It's not like the chairs here in the room. that got to stay here when we walk out the door. The joy of the Lord, because of his spirit within us, goes with us when we walk out the door. And we can live in that joy all week long by fellowshipping with Him. And we can share that joy with others around us, especially those who still don't know Him as their Savior. Some will believe and some will not. That's okay. Our responsibility is very simple. Live in His joy and share that joy with those around us that He puts in our path. And that... Is a life worth living? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy of your spirit dwelling within us. And we just praise you and thank you, Father, that you love us this much to give us your word, to give us your hope, to give us your salvation, to give us the the living in you and the living in the joy of your spirit and living with you here And then one day to see you face to face. Thank you, Father. And fill us with your spirit to the maximum level we can tolerate. In Jesus' name, amen.